I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Jorge Contreras, is a law professor at the University of Utah, especially in the areas of intellectual property law, technical standardization, and antitrust and science policy. In 2020, he received the University of Utah's Distinguished Research Award and is an elected member of the American Law Institute. He has testified before the U.S. Senate Subcommittee on Intellectual Property and has served on several national councils pertaining to intellectual property, antitrust laws, and the intersection between law and science, especially medicine. In addition to his scholarly articles, which have appeared in leading scientific, legal, and policy journals, he has also been interviewed by both U.S. and foreign major media outlets and was awarded the Rossman Memorial Award by the Patent and Trademark Office Society in 2022. His most recent widely acclaimed book, The Genome Defense, Inside the Epic Legal Battle to Determine Who Owns Your DNA, is the subject of today's interview. So, Jorge, welcome to Delving In. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Stuart. It's a pleasure. So first, uh, kudos on your wonderful book. One thing I didn't mention in your bio is I was very impressed that you're, as an undergraduate, you double majored in, in electrical engineering and English at Rice University, which is a very unusual combination. And I think the world needs more people who love both science and literature. And it really shows in the way you wrote the book. It really reads like a novel in some ways. It's a very beautiful characterization of the people. I mean, it's not fiction, but you really describe them in quite a lot of detail. And also, I was just incredibly impressed by how much work must have gone into this book, interviewing nearly 100 people, going through, I'm sure, enormous reams of information, uh, getting information from lawyers, judges, patients, scientists, doctors, genetic counselors, policymakers, and academics. And, and I was also wondering if your location in Salt Lake City had something to do with it, too, because that's where Myriad is. Yeah, absolutely. So... The book is about a legal case, a lawsuit that involves the company Myriad Genetics, which is a spin-out from the University of Utah, which is where I teach and work. But I haven't always been here. In fact, I started this project when I was at American University in Washington, D.C., and it was only by chance, coincidence, that I ended up at University of Utah. But for purposes of writing this book, it was a really useful <laughs> coincidence I, I may not even have finished the project if I hadn't come out here because the insight and the access that I got to people, you know, here and in town really was very helpful. So I'm wondering if we could give us some kind of context to the whole thing by talking about intellectual property. I mean, it, I know that's an enormous subject, but if we could just maybe give a couple of examples, a kind of quintessential examples of intellectual property as it's patented and that we can maybe refer to later as if for an analogy. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the legal subject here is patent law. Um, and, and patents are grants that the government makes to inventors. And if you invent something in the United States, you can apply for a patent. And if you're successful, if you can show the patent office that your invention is original and you didn't copy it from somebody else and it's useful and so forth, well, then the government gives you a patent which gives you 20 years of an exclusive right to be the only one in the United States who can make, use, or sell that invention. So it's a pretty powerful exclusive right that you get. And we see patents all the time in everything from our smartphones to televisions, broadcast communications, but also biopharma. So most drugs are patented when they're first introduced. 
And uh, there's been a lot of controversy about the pricing of some drugs that are patented. We hear when the patents are over, they become generic, right? Generic manufacturers can show up. The patent lasts for 20 years from when you file your application for the, uh, for the patent. So it takes years to get those patents. And when you're talking about drugs, it takes even more years to get FDA approval for those drugs. So, you know, a drug maker probably has about 12 years uh, left on their patent by the time a drug gets to market. Something like that. So what makes, uh, what makes an intellectual property or an intellectual invention, let's say, rather than a physical invention? Like, for instance, uh, uh, the iPhone. And the iPhone is, is an intellectual patent, but it's also physical. I mean, it's something that exists in, in space. <laughs> sure. And it does stuff. And, and, I, and I was also wondering, why was Apple not able to patent the whole idea of, of a smartphone such that there wouldn't be any other smartphones for 20 years. That didn't happen. Yeah, so those are good questions. So it's called intellectual property because the property interest is actually in your idea. And there are a lot of different kinds of intellectual property. Patents are just one. So copyrights, right, the right that you have in a book or a movie, those are intellectual property rights. Trademarks, you know, the brands and so forth that identify products and and services. Those are intellectual property. So patents are a type of intellectual property. It's something that you create with your mind. It's different than, say, land, which is real property, right? Or your physical phone or your car. I buy my iPhone from the Apple store. I own the phone, right? I can use it. I can resell it. I can break it, throw it in the trash if I want to. It's my physical property. That doesn't mean I've got the right to go out and make another iPhone and or sell iPhones just because I bought one. So Apple and, and really, there was an estimate done about 10 years ago that in a typical smartphone, there are actually something like 250,000 different patents um, oh my goodness. at work, right? Because every piece of that phone is patented from the touchscreen to the camera to the radio, you know, the Wi-Fi, the Bluetooth, the uh, the 5G, all of those things are covered by dozens or hundreds of different patents. So why was and the Android makers able to copy the function of the phone? Is it because they got to it in, in a different method? So Android itself is the software operating system. Apple's iOS operating system is definitely covered by patents. Android is different, right? They they operate differently. But the actual look of the phone, the form of the phone, was a subject of a huge amount of litigation. Apple sued Samsung uh, for exactly that reason, right? A Samsung phone looks pretty much like an iPhone. Um, so back in 2011, 2012, 2013, there was huge litigation uh, that went on between Apple and Samsung. Apple actually was able to patent the design of the iPhone. It had copyrights on the design, trademark, trade dress. It protected the iPhone design in a half a dozen different ways. And Apple won uh, some of that litigation. And Samsung ended up having to pay a billion dollars or so in damages. And, you know, now the phones look slightly different. So it's more than the look, though. I mean, it has to... The question is whether you can patent the making of a phone or is you're only patenting one way of making a phone and then it allows other people to make it a different way 
I guess that must be the case, no? Well, that's right. I mean, so certain features of phones are common to all phones. So because they come from third parties. So take the Wi-Fi chip in your phone. Apple doesn't make that. And Samsung doesn't make that. They buy that from a chip vendor who's going to sell anybody who wants one a Wi-Fi chip for a device. Same thing with, you know, the Bluetooth and the screen, you know, the touch screen, Corning and other companies who make the glass, you know, they'll they'll sell it to whoever. And so a lot of the features are the same because they're bought from the same suppliers. The way you put them all together and some of the software is patented by the vendors. And so Apple did patent certain features, uh, certain software of theirs like tap to zoom, right? You know, on your iPhone or your Samsung phone, you can double tap something and it'll get bigger on the screen. That feature was patented by Apple and Apple did sue Samsung over that feature. Okay, so so getting back to the subject of your book, and then maybe we can go back and forth sometimes. Uh, what was the status quo regarding DNA before the case described in your book, the AMP or Association for Molecular Pathology versus Myriad? What, what was the situation uh, leading up to that case? Right, so it's a little bit confusing, right? Because the book and the case are about a company that patented two human genes, right? The BRCA genes that relate to breast and ovarian cancer. So you might ask yourself, how can you patent a gene, right? That that seems odd. We have a special exception in patent law called the product of nature exception. You can not patent something that you just find out there in the natural world, right? So an explorer goes out into the jungle. Um, he finds a new type of moss and rubs it on an injury and, and it cures it. You know, that, that's great. He found it, though. It was existing in nature. He didn't invent it. So he can't patent that, that moss, that plant. And this has been the case for 150 years. We've had case law establishing this. With human genes, it's a little bit different because a little basic genetics here, right? We've each got about 20,000 genes in our... DNA, it's all scattered along 23 chromosomes. Um, the chromosomes are these long segments of DNA in each of our cells. And they're all strung together, right, along the chromosome. If you take one of those genes, you find where it is on the chromosome and break it out uh, so that it's separate and freestanding, and then you amplify it, make millions of copies in the laboratory, then you've created something that doesn't exist in nature, right? The freestanding, free-floating gene that exists in the laboratory, that's not the way it exists in nature. In nature, in our bodies, it's attached to this big, long chromosome with a bunch of other genes strung along at either end. So that new thing, the patent office agreed with researchers that, okay, that thing doesn't exist in nature, so you can get a patent on it. So starting in the late 1980s and the 1990s, when gene sequencing technology was being developed, researchers started to find human genes that were related to different diseases. Diseases, you can find diseases that run in families. There are hereditary diseases, cystic fibrosis, a lot of hereditary um, conditions that affect children. Cancers, of course, many of them are hereditary. And if you can link up particular gene with one of these hereditary diseases and then find that gene on the chromosome, uh, you've made something, according to the patent office, it is new 
and doesn't exist in nature, and you can get a pet. So it sounds to me like there was a method that was being used that was novel, but the information that was being derived was already there to be discovered. And the human genome was completely sequenced in what, 2003, I think, and this case was conceived in 2005. So the Myriad must have discovered the sequencing of this gene, which is, I think, over 100,000 base pairs. I mean, it's not a bead on a string. <laughs> it's much more complicated than that. But they must have sequenced it before the whole genome was sequenced. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so the Human Genome Project really didn't even start to sequence the human genome until sort of the mid to late 90s. And the, you know, the first draft was released in 2000. The so-called final draft was released in 2003. It literally wasn't until 2021, just last year, that really the entire complete sort of wild-type human genome was was completed. But you're right. A lot of this gene discovery happened earlier than that. The sort of the golden age of the gene hunters was in the early to mid-90s. And so Myriad sequenced the BRCA genes in 1994 and 1995. Um, they immediately applied for patents. Those patents started to issue in 1997. So it was long before the Human Genome Project released its final final work. I mean, that being said, they used some information from the Genome Project, right? The Genome Project was chugging along, releasing all of its information to the public as it went along. Myriad and other companies were able to use that to give them clues as to where genes that hadn't been found by the Genome Project might lie. So what happened with the with this lawsuit is that there was, a, I guess, a recognition that they weren't just patenting a process for testing or identifying a gene, but they were claiming ownership of the gene itself. And that was the thing that was so appalling. And I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about Tanya Simoncelli and Chris Hansen and what their eureka moments were regarding the patenting of DNA. Sure, sure. Uh, so as I mentioned, you know, this gene was discovered in 1994. It was a big scientific accomplishment, you know, it was announced to the world. The patents issued in 1997. And at that point, Myriad started to shut down other laboratories and clinics that were running tests for defects in these genes. Because if you have one of the known defects in your BRCA1 or 2 genes, as a woman, your chance of contracting breast cancer or ovarian cancer is 8 to 10 times higher than the general population. It's something like an 80% risk. It's, it's a really high risk, such that if you get a positive result on one of these tests, you know one of the treatments that you really need to consider is a prophylactic mastectomy. Um, removal of the breast tissue, removal of the ovarian tissue um, that is likely to develop cancer sometime during your life. So when Myriad released the sequence in a publication in 1994, a number of academic labs and clinics started testing their patients for these mutations. But in 97, when the patent issued, Myriad shut down pretty much everybody else that was running these tests. It was the only provider of these tests. And it charged a lot for the test, right? It charged about $3,000 at the beginning, which was more than many people could afford. It was not being covered by many insurance policies, not being covered by Medicare or Medicaid. And, and the reason for that is they weren't willing to pay this super high price. Well, that's right. That's right. Myriad 
figured out that the price that it could charge, I mean, the, the test at that point, even the beginning cost maybe two, three, four hundred dollars to uh, to run. Um, but they, they thought they could, you know, make a handsome profit at about three thousand dollars and that they would convince the insurance industry to pay for the test. That was difficult, though. Right. And to say sort of a brief detour here, insurance companies, they don't like to pay for things that they don't have to pay for in general. A test like this, it's not it's not like a um, a biopsy uh, or, or a test, you know, when you detect a lump in your breast that you might have cancer. Right. That's an expensive test, but they pay for that. These genetic tests are done on people who are healthy. They're perfectly healthy. They just might have some a family history of cancer and so feel that they should get this test to see if they've got one of these genetic mutations. But insurers generally don't like to pay for tests on people who aren't sick yet uh, because they pay $3,000 for the test. And, you know, what, what will happen if you get a positive result? Well, if you get a positive result, you don't have cancer yet, but you might get cancer. And so then the insurance company probably has to pay for your prophylactic surgery to remove that tissue. And that's an expensive surgery. In fact, it's the same surgery that you would get if you actually got cancer. So in insurance company logic, why would you pay for a $3,000 test plus, say, an $80,000 surgery when you could just wait 20 years until someone gets cancer and then pay for the surgery, right? That's one of the things that's so maddening about this, and I think you do a masterful job at showing the different layers. You have on the one hand the, the conceptual level, you know, how, how can you patent DNA? That's you know, it's it's not really invented; it's just discovered, and so on. But then you have this whole other economic le- level, and it's it, to reveal my bias. I mean, it's very maddening to think about these companies that make unbelievable amounts of profit. I mean, hundreds of billions of dollars. And holding people's health, I mean, at not just health, but lives at, in the process. It, it's, it's, they're, they're having a sword over people's heads. So you will, you will pay for this. Yeah, exactly. And, and that, that was the realization that these two people you mentioned um, came to. So, so they're at the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union. The ACLU, of course, it's a famous organization. It's been around for 100 years, major civil rights uh, litigation anti-discrimination, free speech, and these types of cases, again, all across the United States. They'd never really gotten very involved in science-related cases. Or patents. Or, well, certainly not patents. In 2001, with the, uh, the terrorist attacks in New York, there, were, there was a lot of fallout from that around civil liberties and civil rights. The Patriot Act, you know, it was NSA spying on Americans, these people held at Guantanamo, all of these civil rights issues uh, were were becoming very prominent. And so the ACLU raised a lot of money um, in donations, so much that it was able to double the size of its legal staff at its headquarters in New York. And one of the people that it thought it should hire is a science advisor. They'd never had a science advisor before. But they hired a young woman out of Berkeley uh, whose name was Tanya Simoncelli. They hired her in 2003. And she came over to advise the ACLU on civil rights implications of mostly biology and genetics. So there's a lot of it. DNA fingerprinting, you know, the FBI maintaining databases of criminal suspects, a whole variety of things. And and the, the ACLU was 
pursuing a lot of these in litigation. But one thing that she just mentioned offhand to a senior litigator named Chris Hansen one day was, you know, there's there's also this, this thing about gene patenting, right? She knew about Myriad and what was happening with breast cancer, um, but it wasn't widely known outside of kind of genetics policy circles. And, and Hansen, when he heard this from her, he, he thought she was just mistaken or wrong because, you know, A, she wasn't a lawyer. B, he, you know, he'd been doing this 30 years, never heard of this, couldn't believe that it was possible. Uh, but of course it was. And she she showed him articles and proof of it. And, and when he realized that, yeah, this is actually happening, a company can own a human gene and everything that you could use that gene for, right? Every possible use or application of that gene, whether a diagnostic test, a drug, a vaccine, every possible use of that gene was owned by this company. He was outraged. I'd actually like to read from your book, if you don't mind, about what we were just talking about. The full sequence of the human genome was released in 2003, though refinements continue to be made today. But even with its basic sequence decoded, the genome, stretching before us in all its microscopic immensity, remains one of the great mysteries of science. Like the deepest trenches of the ocean and the farthest reaches of space, what we have learned about it is dwarfed by what we still don't know. Though it is as close to us as can be, coiled and working relentlessly within each of our trillions of cells, exactly how it makes us who we are still defies understanding. It is biomedical science's last frontier, a sprawling dark continent unspoiled and unknown. To Simoncelli and Hansen, the very notion of laying claim to this common domain of humankind offended the conscience. It shouldn't be done, and it had to be stopped. Exactly. You were kind of identifying with the uh, protagonists here, I think. I, yes, it's, it's no secret. I, I, the book, I tried to be balanced. I tried to present a, a very balanced portrayal of what happened in this case. But yes, it's no secret that I was in support of the ACLU uh, in this case. Yeah, I, I think you do take sides, although you also take great uh, effort, make a great effort to understand the other side, too, and to present it, which I appreciated. I just want to read one other short paragraph about what's at stake. Uh, it wasn't just a matter of owning something inside the human body. Gene patents prevented research and scientific inquiry, too. If a company owned a gene, other researchers couldn't study it, which meant they couldn't make hypotheses or draw conclusions about it. They couldn't publish articles about it. They couldn't talk about it at conferences. So, you know, really, by having this gene patent, it stifled scientific uh, work on, on those genes. Yeah, absolutely. And there was research that showed that this actually was happening. You know, researchers, if they, given the choice between a gene that was patented and a gene that wasn't, many of them decided, you know, I'm not going to go through the hassle of studying this gene that's got a patent on it. Let's just, you know, study this other one. Yeah. And it's not as if they were asking for royalties like you would in a copyright situation. They were just saying, no, you can't study it. <laughs> well, that's right. That's right. Because there are there, there are other ways of, of going about it from totally magnanimous, like Jonas Salk saying, yeah, the uh, polio vaccine is free. I don't want any, you know, I don't want to patent it. Why should it be patented? That's, you know, on the one extreme. Then you have Myriad on the other extreme. Yeah, Jonas Salk in his famous line, you know, could, could you patent the sun? It, that, that, that was in the 50s. So that was a little before patents had grown as much as they had uh, by by the 90s. But But even so... The thing that made Myriad very interesting and very controversial was that it was really the first holder of one of these patents that used it to exclude others, right? So other patents had been 
filed and, and obtained on genes. So University of Michigan, for example, discovered the gene CFTR that's closely associated with cystic fibrosis. Uh, they, they patented it, but they let anybody who wanted to use that patent for a few hundred dollars, right? It was very cheap. And all the labs and clinics who wanted to test for this defect in the cystic fibrosis gene, they could do it. Myriad was the first one who said, no, I, I'm not just going to let you use this patent for any amount of money. No one can use it except us. We want to make a business around this testing. And they were very successful at that. Yeah, you, you, you uh, at some point talk about the tiger, you know, the, uh, <laughs> the avaricious tiger, the metaphor of the tiger is this avaricious company trying to make as much money, gobble up as much resource as possible like a tiger would. Uh, and that you shouldn't blame the tiger because tiger is just going to be a tiger. That a company is just going to be a company if that's what their principles are, is to make as much money as possible for themselves and their shareholders. I guess what you're saying is that the assumptions would need to shift somehow, either by law or by culture, for that not to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Companies, you know, companies are not charities, right? They're there to make money. They promise their investors that they're going to make as much money as they can. And, you know, that's that's what their goal is. They're, but we don't have to exist in a society that is 100% run by companies. And in fact, the really... One of the frustrating things about cases like this is that there were public entities involved here, like the University of Utah, for example, and many universities are the ones who first discovered these genes because this very basic scientific research is, is often funded by the government, by the National Institutes of Health, which spends $40 billion a year in this country funding universities and research institutions to do this basic work. The universities then make these discoveries, and then they license them. They license the patents out to companies, which is what happened here. Um, the University of Utah basically handed Myriad a bunch of rights at the outset to do what they wanted with. I mean, eventually, Myriad got a lot of its own patents, but the first patents, the basic ones, were owned by the university. And the university, which is a public institution, it's a state-run organization supported by the taxpayers, didn't really do anything to um, deal with this pricing or the uh, monopolization of the testing. Right. So, so the initial discoveries are often made in academia where people are getting paid normal salaries. Uh, they don't necessarily need the incentive of becoming absolutely rich in order to, to make, make, to make discoveries. Because that's, that's the argument about the need for patents is that you need them in order to incentivize discovery and invention. Yeah, that's right. But but maybe that's not true. Maybe yeah. Maybe maybe it's, that's not completely true. What's needed for for companies to take risks is you know there's a lot of capital involved in getting something like that started. And and for drugs, there's a whole um, research part of you know, pre-marketing, double-blind studies that are very expensive. But you know that could have been in another country that might be funded by the government instead. No, that, that's exactly right. I, I mean, I'm not against all patents, right? I, I do think it's absolutely right. You're, you're not going to get, for example, uh, a better Wi-Fi chip or something if somebody isn't getting a patent and making money off of that. That's an engineering development, and it's expensive. You've got to hire a lot of engineers and have factories and all sorts of equipment to do it. And sure, who the people who invent it should uh, get paid for it. And I'm very happy to keep getting faster and faster Wi-Fi. 
But with these basic genetic discoveries, you're right, it's basic science. And most of it is paid by the government, the federal government or state governments. And the incentive for researchers at universities to do this research, it, it's not the hope that someday they'll get a patent, right? That's that's so remote and so unlikely. I mean, it, it does happen, right? There are university researchers who have become multimillionaires. They've gotten rich off of this, but they're a tiny minority. What university researchers want is the next federal grant. Every year or so, they're filing uh, grant applications to get their labs funded. Those grants pay their salaries. They pay their graduate students. They pay for the equipment. That's really what makes university labs work, is government funding, uh, not not patents. And presumably, they, they take some pleasure in the intellectual discovery process, you know, the, the delving into the science. They don't necessarily have to do it for a huge reward other than making a living. Yeah, exactly. And university, and I interviewed a number of university researchers, and I, I know a bunch of university researchers in my own personal life. And you're right, they're, they're not in it to become multimillionaires. You know, they're, they make a perfectly respectable salary from their universities, but they were kids, you know, starting in like junior high school who liked science. And, you know, it, being a researcher, it's, it's a great job. You can do something that's fun, uh, that you enjoy, like as your regular job. It's a great job. And, you know, those who can do it, do it for, uh, for the science by and large. So let's take just a little digression here and talk about another example of a biological patent. Uh, GE invented, I guess you could say, rather than discovered a tiny petroleum-craving organism. Is that something they isolated, or did they create it with with genetic engineering? So, yes. That, that would be for cleaning up oil spills, presumably, right? Exactly, and that it actually worked, right? So this was in the 70s. This was sort of the dawn of genetic engineering. And what General Electric did, one of its chemists, Anant Chakrabarty, he found a like a, a normal bacterium that exists out there in nature, but he modified it. He added to its genome some bases, right, that it took from another organism that made it be more attracted to hydrocarbons. And so this bacteria then, it had this genetic inclination, this basically chemical attraction to hydrocarbons so that, and, and the, the bacterium was also good at breaking things down, right? Breaking down other chemical compounds. So breaking down compounds coupled with attracted to hydrocarbons means exactly like you said, you can take this bacterium, take giant vats of it, put it in a helicopter, fly over an oil spill out in the Gulf or the, you know, out in Alaska and spray it on there, and it will help break down oil spills. It it does that. This this thing works. But when Chakrabarty and GE tried to patent this discovery in the 70s, the patent office rejected their patent. And why is that? It's because it's a living organism. So just like if you breed a Dalmatian and a Great Dane and create some kind of spotted new dog breed. Like, you can't get a patent on that. There was this general understanding that other than certain types of plant varieties that have special laws for, you can't patent living organisms. And so the Patent Office denied his patent. They took this case all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. 
And, and there was a lot of controversy around this question, whether you could patent a living thing. And again, it wasn't one that was discovered in nature. They created this bacterium, um, or at least created the modified version of the bacterium. Uh, but there were objections from religious groups, like very strong moral objections, saying, you know, this is commoditizing like living things like bacteria. Yeah, who really cares? But bacteria is opening the door. It's a slippery slope. Before you know it, it's animals and then it's humans. So this this could have happened. Well, then we have all the bacteria in our guts that are being studied with, you know, can that be patented too? I and mean, that would be a problem. If, if those bacteria were modified. So yeah, say, say that we can modify some of the bacteria in our microbiome so that we absorb fewer calories or, uh, you know, more efficiently digest food. That would be patented. And then we'd have all these little patented bacteria in our guts. So you're right. But and the Supreme Court said this was okay. In, in 1980, in like this watershed case called Diamond versus Chakrabarty, you know, split five to four decision, the Supreme Court said, nope, living organism doesn't matter. If scientists created it and it doesn't exist in nature, go for it. You get your patent. So first it was a no and then it was a yes, the Supreme Court level? That's right. Yep. Okay. So that's part of the background to this whole Myriad case and, and the BRCA gene. Absolutely. The whole question about whether living things can be patented or not. The other part of your book that's so uh, compelling is is the whole kind of drama of the case, you know, from the being conceived to trying it at the district level to at the appellate level, and then finally the Supreme Court. And I, I can almost imagine this as a TV series. There's too much information for a single movie, I think. Uh, you know, and, and it will be interspersed with human interest, with the characters and the, the women with breast cancer or, you know, among the plaintiffs. And, you know, there's a lot of ju juicy stuff, <laughs> you know, to be depicted. It, it's a very human story, right? And so any TV producers listening today, you know, uh, <laughs> just feel free to get in touch. But you're absolutely right. It It's a human story. And people thinking about a patent case, you think, oh, that's like, that's so boring. That's like, you know, filling out your tax return or something. But but this one wasn't, as some might be. This one was not. It involved a lot of big personalities, uh, a lot of reversals and unexpected twists and turns. It uh, as as a legal case, it was it's fascinating and really I followed this case from the very beginning. And we who were watching this case move along, we were on the edge of our seats the whole time. Yeah, you describe it as being like watching a prize fight or, or I guess, a World Cup match, and that, and that the Supreme Court, especially, you know, listening to the oral arguments among the justices, was was edge of your your seat stuff. Yeah, yeah, the uh, oral argument at the Supreme Court is is like into like a full contact sport. It's um, it's it's pretty brutal. Uh, you you cannot be thin skinned if you're going to uh, go up there and get grilled by nine of the sharpest legal minds in the country. Yeah, and I, and I love your description of um, Justice uh, Kagan. She saw some weakness in the uh, opposing uh, counsel and uh, Castanias and, and just went for it. I mean, just, and she got him to, to uh, say that a whole chromosome could be patented. I mean, she led him down the uh, path of reasoning, and he couldn't resist. Yep, yep, and and even the, like a kidney could be patented. She, uh, she, she really. Uh, like I said, they're they're sharp. You know, we criticize the Supreme Court all the time in this country, and with good cause. I'm not saying I agree with every one of their decisions, but 
whatever you think about the justices, they are all pretty sharp people. And then uh, back to the idea of um, how dramatic this whole thing was. I mean, you had what, what you call, I don't know if you call them, but reactivists. So Brackagene, reactivists. Not my term. Yeah, the, the, that was created by the, the people themselves. Right. So the ACLU was coordinating with them and also mobilizing media stars to, to their cause. So you have Michael Crichton, the science fiction novelist, and you have Angela Lugan and Jolie, who herself had the BRCA gene. And I mean, it's just just amazing how many uh, people and how many forces had to be involved. There was even a, a group called Force, yes. <laughs> which was an advocacy and support group for pre-vibers, which would be uh, women who had the gene. Right, but didn't didn't have cancer yet, and and force was really instrumental in this whole story, and and also my writing of the book. They were some of the first people I contacted when I thought this might make an interesting book, and they were they were extremely helpful to me, and um, I mean as a result, I'm actually contributing half of the proceeds from this book to force because um, like patents or not it. Getting a diagnosis uh, that, that you've got one of these deleterious genes is devastating, and, and they are terrifying. Very helpful to those people, right? And and it sounds like the medical community would typically advise the prophylactic mastectomy and and uh, hysterectomy. It's these days it's standard of care. But that that's pretty much standard. That's pretty much standard. Yeah. Yeah, it's standard of care, which is again for. Uh, a woman, say, in her 20s uh, to get this news and to have to consider, like, the life changes that uh, removal of the ovaries and fallopian tubes will, will cause is is huge. It, it's just a huge, uh, wrenching set of decisions. Right, as well as a wrenching hormonal, devastating hormonal change happening all at once instead of gradually. Yeah, it's, it's a physically demanding and uh, terrible. It's interesting, the, the little side, not sidebars, but side stories. Uh, so, for instance, Mark Skolnick, who was the founder and CEO of Myriad, and it turns out that his mother was a avid ACLU supporter and, you know, activist within ACLU, and she got a call from, uh, I guess, ACLU that, you know, they're suing her son, her son's company, you know, and that's that's in the book, too. It is, and Skolnick himself told me that story. I had ne- that's not in the literature. I'd never heard that, um, but but it it shows, you know, that this this isn't just a story of good guys and bad guys, um, evil corporation, you know, versus uh, the good uh, good crusaders. That you know, even the people at Myriad were real people too. They had real lives, and they had other interests, and. They, to some degree, they thought that they were doing good. Uh, many of the rank and file people in Myriad, when they heard that they were being sued by the ACL, you couldn't believe it, you know, because they work at a company that produces breast cancer screening testing for women, saves lives. They, they thought they're working for a pretty good company. And, you know, the pricing decisions and the access decisions for the test come at the very, very highest levels of the company. But but there are a lot of very good people who work there who really had very little to do with that, including most of the scientists. Yeah, and I think the same could be said of drug companies. There's a lot of dedicated scientists working for them, and they they don't have any direct say over the pricing of the drugs. So one thing that I was a little bit surprised about in the outcome of the Supreme Court decision was that it was unanimous. 
and I think the court was already a conservative majority at that point, a 5-4, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think the stereotype of that Supreme Court was that it almost always favors industry. And, and yet in this case, they didn't. It was surprising, right? Anybody who knows anything about the Supreme Court knows that a unanimous decision, 9-0, is pretty rare these days. And this was this occurred in 2013. Most of the same faces were there. There, there were some, some differences. But yeah, for the most part, it was the same group, and they were equally divided. There were plenty of very divided decisions before that. And again, even the 1980 decision with the, the oil-eating bacteria, that was a five to four decision, right? So they could disagree on, on patent cases. The Supreme Court is funny that way. You know, patent cases and intellectual property cases don't always split along political party lines. And the best example of this is Justice, uh, former Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who, as we all know, is a crusader for women's rights, a champion of civil liberty. She started the Women's Rights Project at the ACLU at one of her first jobs after law school. But in terms of copyright cases, for example, she was pretty pro-corporate of all things. She was you know, quite in favor of strong copyright protection, voted in favor, and actually I think might have written the opinion in the case that extended copyright by an additional 20 years to protect Mickey Mouse from going out of copyright, and some really surprising decisions. And plenty of academics have pondered these these questions, and watching the Supreme Court is a favorite pastime of uh, legal academics, trying to figure out why they vote the way they do. And I wonder how much the publicity campaign had to do with that. I mean, the ACLU spent years preparing that. You know, and, and it, plus it turned out that there were some films, some documentaries that came out at just the right time that they hadn't organized. And the reason they, they chose the Myriad case is because it was a well-known issue already. You know, the breast cancer was, there's so much activism about breast cancer already. Most people know about the BRCA gene. And you have celebrities uh, available. I mean, you know, it was it was very conducive for making a massive, massive publicity campaign to argue their point. And, and I guess the question is whether the Supreme Court justices listen to that stuff. I think the assumption is that they do or, or ACLU wouldn't have done what they did. I think that's right. I mean, the justices, of course, they'll decide the cases based on what they think the law should be. But in a case like this... The law could be the law could go either way, right? It's it's literally a coin toss as to whether the gene should or shouldn't be patentable. And the patent office for twenty five years had been allowing patents on these genes. They had perfectly rational legal arguments for doing that. The Supreme Court could have uh, sided with the appeals court below, which also upheld the patents and said, "No, oh, you know they're right. We're going to go this way." They didn't. They didn't do that, and it wasn't just because of the doctrinal legal arguments one way or the other. They had to have been influenced by the publicity. And you're absolutely right. From the very beginning, they chose the breast cancer genes as opposed to other genes, other patents, which were in some cases even worse uh, than the situation with BRCA because everyone had heard of breast cancer and Justice Sandra Day O'Connor had breast cancer. Uh, many of the sitting justices knew her. They served with her on the court. Justice Ginsburg 
had been diagnosed not with breast cancer, but with other forms of cancer. Other justices' wives and spouses and relatives had breast cancer. Everybody knew about it. It affects every, probably every single person in the United States. So you had this tremendous publicity campaign for their side, but then you had a lot of pushback from the other side. I mean, there were patent lawyers, the, the U.S. Patent Office, that they were really worried that this would not only stifle uh, invention, but also rip apart a well-established sphere of the economy. So there was a lot of pushback. Yeah, and there were very legitimate arguments on the other side of this case. First, the fact that the patent office had been issuing these patents for like over 25 years, right? A, more than a generation. This was considered black letter law that you could... If you isolated and purified human genes from the body, you were entitled to a patent on them. The fact that the ACLU challenged that common wisdom, that was stunning to the patent bar, to patent lawyers uh, in this country. They, they kind of went ballistic. And there's a, a very active blogosphere in this country around patent law. There were bloggers calling for the ACLU lawyers to be disbarred, you know, to be sanctioned by the court because it was just such a frivolous case. So very strong feelings on that other side. With the time remaining, let's talk about post-Myriad. You know, what happened? Of course, we had the, the unanimous decision against them. And, you know, the fear was that uh, it was going to wreak havoc on the industry. And, uh, and it, it didn't. No, no. Like most sky is falling arguments, this one didn't pan out 2013, the day after the Supreme Court made its ruling, other testing companies jumped into the BRCA testing market. They had obviously been waiting for it. They were prepared. They offered the testing for half the price that Myriad was uh, was charging. And today, you know, if you sign up for 23andMe for, you know, $125, uh, they'll tell you the results. You know, they'll, they'll test for at least the major of BRCA mutations. I, I don't think anybody would go get surgery uh, based on the results of a 23andMe test, but at least it tells you you should go to a real testing lab um, or go to your doctor if you get that result. In, in your book, you, you in identifying with the other side, you know, there is a kind of feeling like the sky is going to fall, the company is going to be destroyed, and what's going to happen. But in fact, they're doing well. <laughs> You know, that they, in fact, they, they were able to do a little bit of spin and even declare victory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cer certainly their law firm uh, was very adroit at um, at spinning this. Uh, but but it is true, Myriad is doing fine as a company. They, they've continued to grow and they, they have other tests, right? Uh, breast cancer isn't their only test. They've got a lot of business opportunities and as I said, they've grown significantly in the last nine years since since this case. And plenty of other labs are doing this testing. And the industry hasn't been destroyed. There is, like, I have talked to many scientists, many clinicians. No one can think of a genetic test that, you know, they really wish existed and didn't because there wasn't a company to do it, right? These days, the large laboratory testing companies will test for any genetic defect, and it's it's widely available generally at lower prices. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing that uh, not only did the sky not fall, it didn't even sag. 
<laughs> yeah. To sort of give the full story. So one area, one economic area that was affected, that these are the statistics that people who are upset about this case will cite, is there is less venture capital investment in genetic diagnostics startups, right? New companies who are going to take a genetic test and try to make a business out of it because they monopolize the field. That has dried up. But in my opinion, that's okay, right? We don't need those companies because the tests are being performed by clinics all across the country. And so there there certainly would have been opportunities for some people to make money with these patents. But just because of that, I, I don't think that's a reason to, um, I don't think we have to, I don't think that the society has to afford everyone whatever opportunity uh, they, they uh, wish they had to, to make money. One thing we didn't uh, mention, I don't think, is that Myriad's patent on the BRCA gene analysis was actually only a couple of years from expiring. And so you know, the, re- the reason that was chosen was not in order to get at Myriad, but to make the, the much broader principle that DNA itself should not be patentable. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. It was just a beautiful test case. And it's a beautiful test case regardless of how long they had the patent for. Uh, that's right. The ACLU, uh, they weren't out to get Myriad specifically. That's another thing that made this case very different than your typical patent case. Because typical patent case, two companies or a company in a university are fighting over a particular patent. Is your patent valid? Did you deceive the patent office? Did you really invent this thing? And at the end of the case, if the plaintiffs win, the patent is gone. It's invalidated. But again, Myriad didn't care just about that. In fact, they didn't even challenge all of Myriad's patents. They This was truly a test case, the kind of civil rights test case that they bring in all of their other cases, free speech, you know, freedom of religion and so forth. But they achieved the result that they wanted, which was with this test case, they established a rule that then is applicable to every gene patent in the country, no matter what gene, no matter what company holds it. It was a new precedent. Absolutely. Yeah, and a very important one. Well, let's talk a little bit about nine points, which which is a kind of a, a suggestion for preventing this kind of problem in the future. Not, not, not just the patent issue, but just the intellectual openness uh, kind of stance that's being, I guess, uh, universities are making a commitment uh, to make the licenses, uh, the licensees to make research tools as broadly available as possible. So can you talk about that, about the nine points? That sounds like a really helpful thing. And, and it's, I guess that's voluntary, but if enough universities buy in, then it becomes a cultural norm. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, as, as I mentioned at the beginning, a lot of these basic scientific discoveries are being made in academic research institutions because they are heavily funded by the federal government, both National Institutes of Health on the biotech side, but also, you know, Department of Energy, National Science Foundation, lots of funding is going in. And universities generally have a public mission, right, to educate and to uh, improve society through their research. But the way universities operate these days. They have offices within each university called technology transfer, technology licensing offices. And they're 
charter from the university generally is, you know, you make some money for us using our uh, discoveries. There's a statute that was passed in 1980 called the Bayh-Dole Act, which authorizes universities to get patents on their federally funded discoveries. And in fact, it strongly encourages universities to do that. There was a feeling back in the 70s that university technology was not getting out into the marketplace. This was damaging American competitiveness compared to Japan, which was sort of the big uh, commercial uh, opponent back then. And, and so universities, they have these patents, they have these licensing offices, and their goal in many cases is to make as much money as they can from these uh, intellectual assets that the universities own. So in 2006, and this is even after the Myriad case was, was uh, first uh, being considered, a number of big research universities, Stanford, Harvard, Berkeley, uh, and so forth, got together and thought, you know, we... We may be losing sight of our charitable missions here. We should agree that we're going to respect this charitable and public mission in our licensing activity. And so they came up with nine, what they call like nine points for academic licensing, something like that, where they committed that they would do this. And a bunch, like over 100 universities signed this statement of principles, which has, it's it's had mixed results. First, not all academic medical institutions have signed up to it. In fact, many haven't. Um, so that itself should tell you something. Uh, but even among the ones who have, it's not clear that they've done an awful lot uh, to truly, uh, you know, implement the high-level principles that they espoused in those statements. So it's a start, but it really hasn't been refined, it sounds like. Well, we're almost out of time. I just want to quote one more time from your book. Uh, I think it might make a nice uh, ending. You, you refer to the case as being like an onion. So the, the outermost level would be the whether DNA is patentable just on principle, and then the deeper levels would be the effect on people, the effect on the economy and public health. But then you say, but there is within AMP and Myriad a deeper layer still. That is its connection to human genes. Genes hold a privileged place in our collective imagination and our notions of what it means to be human. They are the messengers of, her of heredity, determining our physical features, our mental quirks, our susceptibility to disease. They link us to our families, our ancestors, broader social, ethnic, and regional groups, and at the deepest level to all living creatures on earth. And as something with which we are born and that we can never change, at least not yet, we consider genes to be integral to our persona and our identities as human beings. So wonderfully put, really, I think, gets to the uh, kind of deeper level of, of what we're talking about here. And it's not just a case. It's, it's, uh, it intersects just so enormously with, with who we are and, and who we'd like to be. Yeah, absolutely. No, it was, it was, it, it's an important set of considerations that, that I really invite people to think about. And, and that, that's why I wrote this book. Well, Jorge Contreras, law professor at University of Utah and the author of The Genome Defense Inside the Epic Legal Battle to Determine Who Owns Your DNA. Thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. Thanks so much for having me, Stuart. A real pleasure. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, 
and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.